advertising slogans are a mixed bag, aren't they? There have been thousands over the years that we just forget because they're totally average. But, but some have been so bad that they've actually become famous. Like the Uzbekistan Airways advert that gained some publicity in 2010. Did it gain enough publicity for you to have seen it? It's a billboard poster where you can see the tail of an aeroplane resplendent in Uzbekistan Airways livery. It's just entering a cloud. There's blue skies behind it. Uzbeki traditional symbols on the left-hand side. And on the bottom right-hand side, just two words of text. The advertising slogan. Here it is behind us. <laughs> Good luck. I, th I think that one might have been lost in translation somewhere along the line. I once flew with Yeti Airlines in Nepal. That is genuinely their name. They did a few daily flights from Kathmandu out to Mount Everest so that you could see the highest mountain in the world from a safe distance. Well, I might have been a safe distance from the mountain, but I didn't feel particularly safe inside this sardine can of a plane. The publicity leaflet proudly announced that they hadn't suffered a fatal crash since 2008. I, I, I wanted a bit more of a track record than that, to be honest. You, you were allowed to wander up into the cockpit and have a chat with a pilot if you wanted to see how a plane worked. I, I was trying to persuade people to sit down and let the pilot focus on getting us back home safe. I, I imagine that people who were in the death zone above 8,000 metres that day on Everest found, felt about as safe uh, as I did. Good luck would have been an apt slogan for Yeti Airlines. Well, the Corinthian church seemingly had a good proportion of their congregation who worked in PR and advertising. This passage we're looking at tonight shows a number of what appear to be slogans that they used. We see the first one at the very beginning of verse 12. I have the right to do anything. Paul isn't a fan though. Remember that this letter, Paul is pointing the Corinthian church away from themselves and towards Christ. Since chapter 5, he's been pointing them away from self-centered freedom towards Christ-centered freedom. But here they show their hand. Their advertising slogan shows their business philosophy. The branding matches what's going on inside the church. I have the right to do anything. I'm totally free. They have another slogan too. You can see it in verse 13. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. I have an appetite. So if I'm hungry and I see some food and I like the look of it, I'm just going to go and eat it. I have the right to do anything. I'm free. Paul has his own slogan though. Can you see it in the second half of verse 13? The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's Paul's slogan. That's what he's going to try and get across to them here in this passage. Away from self-centered freedom towards Christ-centered freedom. Verse 14 is just a tiny precursor to chapter 15, which we'll come to in a couple of months' time. God won't destroy your body, Paul tells the Corinthians. He will raise it. 
These first three verses reveal the Corinthian attitude to life, all wrapped up in these slogans that they have. Self-centeredness, self-centered freedom. I have the right to do anything. Nothing I do really matters. My body doesn't really matter. If I see something and I want it, I'll have it and there will be no lasting consequences. But Paul shows them that they're wrong. And in order to show them that they're wrong, he focuses in on just one area of life. As we look at this passage tonight, we're not going to go through it verse by verse from the beginning to the end. In fact, we've already been through the first three verses. But Paul starts in those verses broadly. And he'll end the passage again by broadening out. They generally, top and tail, have a wrong view of freedom. But but in verses 15 to 19, like a laser beam, Paul pinpoints one area of life that the Corinthians are embroiled in. Sexual immorality, sexual sin, to show them just how wrong about their whole philosophy to life. And the first thing that Paul does is give them a doctrinal reminder. He tells them that they are united to Christ. Three times across these verses, Paul points out to the Corinthians that they are united to Christ. Each time he says to them, do you not know that? You are united to Christ. Let me just reread these three verses. The first one is verse 15. Please look at it with me. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Verse 17, the do you not know that came in verse 16, but verse 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? The fact that a Christian is united with Christ is repeated throughout the New Testament. We've seen it in 1 Corinthians already. Back in chapter 1, verse 30, Paul says, you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself teaches on it extensively in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16. And it's really clear, emphasized three times in this passage. But despite that, I think it's an idea that we largely underplay. To to understand just how important it is and how precious it is, we have to go back to the very start of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, which we looked at back in September on Sunday evenings, if you remember, Adam was created by God, placed in the Garden of Eden, given a gift of Eve as a wife, and together they lived as God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing his blessing. They were able to be in God's presence in that perfect, sinless world. But then in Genesis 3, they sinned. They disobeyed the one command that God had given them. And among the other consequences, they were exiled from the garden. They were cast out from God's presence. And one massive question that can be traced from Genesis 3 right to the end of the Bible is whether humanity will ever be able to be back in God's presence again. That theme builds across Scripture. 
so we see at the very end of Exodus in chapter 40, the climax of the book, that the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. It, the tabernacle became the place on earth where God dwells. But there were limitations. God's people were able to live in proximity to him in some way, but it was only the high priest who was able to enter once a year. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, it escalates again because King Solomon builds the temple and God is able to reside and dwell in a permanent place in the temple in Jerusalem. Things look good. But then the prophet Ezekiel tells us that God's glory left the temple because of the great sin of the people. God could no longer dwell among them. And the prophetic books look forward to a day in the future when at last God will be among his people again. Isaiah three times says that we're to be looking forward to Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. So when we get to John chapter 1 and we read that Jesus comes to earth and became flesh, and God's Son made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, we are to be ecstatic. What what does the Christmas carol say? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our God with us, Emmanuel. But after dying and rising from the dead, Jesus ascends to be at the right hand of his Father. He he leaves the earth. And we long for a future, as Revelation 21 tells us, where God's dwelling place will be among his people and he will dwell with them. There's a whistle-stop tour of God's presence throughout Scripture. But what about us? What about now? Where are we left in all of this? Are are we on our own? Are we just longing for a day in the future? And Paul here tells us, no. If you are a Christian, you are united to Christ. You have union with Christ. By the indwelling power of the Spirit, Christ is in you. But Paul tells us that your body is a member of Christ himself. Your body is a part of Christ. But being united with him means that you are one with him in spirit. But Paul says your, your body is a temple. Your body is now the place on earth where God lives. You are part of this great pattern. Christ is in you. Uh, John Murray was a Presbyterian theologian from Scotland who taught at Princeton. And this is what he said. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. All that we've been looking at in Romans over the last Sunday mornings, our calling, our regeneration, our justification, our adoption, those glorious truths that we've been thrilled to hear about, they all contribute to bringing us into union with Christ. 
In a sense, it sums up what it means to be a Christian. Every way in which the Bible tells us that we are connected to Christ, and there's a whole host of them, can be summed up by saying that we, as Christians, have union with Christ. And it's only after ensuring that his listeners know this truth three times, do you not know that? That Paul moves on to a second point. Flee from sexual immorality. You can see it there in verse 18. It's a command. Flee, run, sprint, get away from, do anything and everything possible to avoid sexual sin. The full force of the verb to flee could be a bit over-translated to say, make it your daily habit to flee from sexual sin. Why? Because you are united to Christ. That's Paul's argument. That's this passage summed up. You are united to Christ, so flee from sexual immorality. How does Paul's argument logically fit together in the passage? Well, Paul shows us in the second half of verse 15. But in fact, he shows us how the two parts fit together by showing us precisely that they don't actually fit together. Let me read just from verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Union with Christ and sexual immorality do not fit together. But Paul tells the Corinthians, you are united with Christ. Corinthian Christian, If you have repented and believed the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, then you are united with Christ. But he then takes up this example of someone who is united with Christ having sex with a prostitute. How could someone be both united to Christ and also be united with a prostitute? How can someone who is united to Christ, a member of Christ, of one spirit with Christ, the very dwelling place of Christ, have sex with a prostitute? How can you be Christ's and also be a prostitute's? That's what Paul is saying again and again in these verses. And at the end of verse 15, he just cries out, never. It doesn't work. The two things don't fit together. The one who is united with Christ cannot also be united with a prostitute. The end of verse 16 is key to Paul's argument. He makes a really important point. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, just after the first marriage ceremony, when God pronounces Adam and Eve man and wife. And Paul says that the very same thing happens if someone has sex with a prostitute. Two become one. 
The Spice Girls weren't original. This is biblical. There is no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as sex without consequence. A one-night stand is never a one-night thing. It's a bond that has implications. Sex creates a union. But for someone who is united with Christ, how can they be in both a holy, spiritual union with him and be in a sinful, illicit union with someone that they're not married to? And Paul says they can't. So in verse 18, he says, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual sin. The end of verse 18 is difficult to unpack fully, but Paul is saying that there's a quantitative difference between sexual sin and other sinful acts. But Paul says there's an effect wrapped up in this bodily union that comes through sex that makes it not worse, but certainly different and with more serious consequences than other Sins, And when he's talking about consequences, he's not talking about an STI, and he's not talking about getting pregnant. He's talking about the entangling nature of sex between two souls and the incompatible nature of that with union to Christ. The Corinthian attitude of self-centered freedom and having the right to do anything they want with no consequences... Paul looks at this issue of sex and destroys all of their philosophies. And towards the end of the passage, as his laser beam focus broadens out again, he speaks directly against the Corinthian slogan in verse 12. I have the right to do anything. Verse 19, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. The freedom the Corinthians have is not self-centered freedom. It's Christ-centered freedom. They still have an owner. Can you see that? They have been bought not to be able to do whatever they want and think that anything that they do doesn't matter, but instead they are to live a life of holiness under a better master. And Paul closes this section by saying... Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That's, that's as broad as you could possibly get. Anything that your body does, may it honor and glorify God. That's Paul's message here in this passage. True freedom will see you glorify God in your body because you're united to Christ. And one specific area of life that you must do that in is by fleeing from sexual immorality. There are a whole host of applications to draw out from this passage. I'm going to briefly bring just seven. That wasn't funny. That's true. We've got a Q&A after. There's time for more.
Firstly, remember you are united with Christ. Everything in this passage is rooted in the fact that the Christian is united with Christ. If I've not shown you that that's what Paul's doing, I've not done a very good job. That is what Paul is doing. Let me be clear. Paul doesn't simply say, flee from sexual immorality because it's wrong or because it's sinful or because it's breaking God's law. Those things may be true, but Paul says flee from sexual sin because you are united with Christ. J.C. Ryle uh, was a bishop of Liverpool, lucky fella, in the 19th century. And he wrote a classic book called Holiness. It's such a classic that I have only just actually picked it up this week. And as I read it, I'm a study throughout this week, someone else unnamed from the ministry team said, oh, Holiness, that's a classic. I've never read it. It's both a classic and well worth reading. He says this in his introduction to his book on Holiness. Above all, I hope this book will help to bring forward the grand truth that union with Christ is the root of all holiness and will show believers what immense encouragement Jesus Christ holds out to all who would strive to be holy. One aspect of union with Christ that is particularly important and precious and joyful is that the power of sin is broken for the person who is united to Christ. We saw that just a few weeks ago in Romans 6, didn't we? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Sin is not our master. We have been bought at a price. Not for self-centered freedom that says, I have the right to do anything, but for Christ-centered freedom. Secondly, Paul starts and finishes this passage broadly. So in this passage, Paul is not limiting self-centered freedom to sexual sins only. If at the minute this is not something that you're struggling with, then praise God. But last week we were really helpfully reminded that even if we're currently not in litigation with another Christian, there are still applications that we can draw out. And it's the same this week. I was reminded, studying this passage in preparation, that back in June last year, I spent a bit of time in this passage when I gave a talk at the Hub. The talk was on Love Island and body image, which is not a talk that I thought I would ever give. Back then, reading and studying this passage, it awoke a real conviction in my heart that had been steadily growing over the previous few months that my attitude to food was really sinful and that I embodied that Corinthian slogan, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. I was hugely challenged by being reminded that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and that I must honour God with my body. Now, Let me be clear, I am not saying that being overweight is necessarily sinful, but I absolutely am saying that my attitude to food was sinful and that the word of God drew me to repent and that by God's grace and a virtue of the fact that I'm united to Christ, God has dealt with me regarding my attitude to food. Genuinely, weight loss is a side issue. It's a sinful attitude to food that is the core 
of the problem. There could be a host of different ways that we have a self-centered attitude that says, I have the right to do whatever I want and there are no consequences. For me, and there are a host of things, but God brought that one to my mind and challenged me on it. And we need to ask God to show us where we need to repent. Thirdly, Paul warns us to beware of some things which aren't even sinful. Right back in verse 12, when Paul quotes the first slogan, he gives two reasons to be wary. You might be free, Paul says, but firstly, not everything is helpful. And secondly, some things you're free to do might actually enslave you. The things that the Corinthians are using this slogan for can't all be sinful things, otherwise Paul would just outright condemn them. Paul is making the point that there are amoral issues in this life that are not necessarily sinful, but they may be best to avoid because they are unhelpful and could even, over time, enslave you. We should not abuse our freedom in Christ to the extent that we should at least consider foregoing some things which are not sinful because of their potential unhelpfulness and enslaving nature. That is really key from this passage. We have to be sensible, of course, but our Christian culture today has so far run away from our grandparents' attitude of the 50s and 60s that we perceive to be legalism that to even suggest that someone might choose to be teetotal is ridiculed. And it's because I think that we've so much bought into the Corinthian attitude of I have the right to do anything. So particularly regarding sexual immorality, there are a whole host of things that may well not be sinful. The things that we watch on television, the people that we hang out with, the people who we pursue romantic relationships with, the music that we listen to, whether or not we drink alcohol, and if we do, how much we drink, the places that we go to, the conversations that we allow ourselves to have with people, the emotional connections that we allow to grow with people of the opposite sex or people of the same sex if we're attracted to them. They could all be, I think, matters of Christian conscience and freedom, not necessarily sinful, but here Paul warns us not to just default to saying, I have the right to do anything, but instead to remember that not everything is beneficial and we should be careful to not be mastered by anything. Why? Because we're united with Christ. We have been bought at a price we are not our own. That relationship is so precious that we have to do everything that we can to preserve it. The next four are shorter. Fourthly, rampant, ongoing, unrepentant, unchanging sexual sin may be an indicator that you are not united to Christ. We need to remember the immediate context of this passage. If you just lift your eyes to chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, Paul warns that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says that union with Christ is incompatible with sexual immorality. So it may be that if you're in an ongoing sexual relationship with someone that you're not married to, 
and that you're not repentant of and that you're not concerned about in any way that, that may be an indicator that you're actually not united to Christ. That is a sober warning. Fifth, you may currently be sinning sexually because you don't have the correct view of sex. There are a whole host of wrong attitudes to sex and bodies here in this passage. The thought that sex can be casual, but Paul says sex is serious. It's a serious thing that unites and bonds. The idea that sex is simply an appetite and if you crave it, then you need to have it. But Paul says don't be self-centered, be Christ-centered. The idea that your body doesn't matter. Maybe that you're just a Christian in some spiritual sense. But Paul says what you do with your body really does matter. Just wait until we get to 1 Corinthians 15. Six, flee from sexual immorality. There can't be a clearer command than that. There's no ambiguity. In the context of 1 Corinthians 5 to 7... Sexual immorality doesn't just consist of sleeping with your stepmother or sleeping with a prostitute. Those are the only two examples that Paul specifically gives. It includes any physical sexualized relationship with another person who you're not married to. And would, by the way, also include any wrong sexual relationship with someone that you are married to. You can be sexually immoral inside your own marriage. And while Paul talks here specifically about a union with someone physically, we are clearly also to include any non-physical sexual acts, whether that's individually in our own minds, in our own thoughts, pictures or videos that we look at, whether explicitly pornographic or just sexualized. And these things aren't often mentioned from a pulpit so just to be clear of course we are to flee from illegal sexual activity and any type of abuse the the greek word poneia which we have translated here sexual immorality is a broad term and the context here attests to that all sexual sin is to be included and we are to flee from it all finally and joyfully if you are not currently fleeing from sexual immorality, if you feel like you have been mastered by it, if you are currently enslaved by it, you can find both forgiveness and the power to break free from it through union with Christ, through the full and free salvation that he offers to you tonight. Flee from sexual immorality and run instead to him. In these verses, Paul warns us away from self-centered freedom. He ushers us towards Christ-centered freedom. I have the right to do anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Those are self-centered philosophies that we should not live our life by. Instead, turn to Christ. If you want a slogan, try one of these ones. The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I am not my own. I was bought at a price. It might not be sinful, but is it helpful? And might it enslave me? I will honor God with my body. Because 
I am united with Christ. Every day I will flee from sexual immorality. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. Father, when you speak to us and deal with us through your word, sometimes it cuts. That hurts. But we thank you that that is the way in which you make us more into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus. That is how through our continued sanctification and growing holiness, we are increasingly more united with Christ. Father, we ask that your word would work this evening. We thank you for it. Amen.